Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join me on the turning point up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh, and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, welcome to 2020 Plus. (sighs) <sighs> Meet the new year, same as the old year, or something to that effect. I think we can all be hopeful that maybe the year will eventually be different. But yes, as you say, 2020 plus seems just about right so far. But happy new year, everyone. Yeah, well, it's it's this week has been a long year, but uh, we'll get into that in our first topic. But, you know, let's just really get underway with headlines. In terms of TV industry news, the return to work this week has been pretty slow. Roku is reportedly in talks to buy Quibi's content library. Both companies have declined comment on a potential deal, so we'll continue to monitor that front. In casting news, Clancy Brown has joined Showtime's Dexter revival as the season's big bad. And Catherine Zeta-Jones will recur on season two of the Fox drama Prodigal Son, a piece of casting that allowed me to tell a lot of people who apparently hadn't known before that Catherine Zeta-Jones had a Facebook watch show called Queen America that really and truly, I swear to God, existed. That was a real thing that happened. I remember when Facebook watch did scripted shows. It's true. But do you remember that particular show? I do not. No, it was not especially good. Yeah. Meanwhile, on the executive carousel, Ricky Strauss has departed as head of marketing and content at Disney Plus. Former Fox COO Joe Early will take over the role after joining the streamer two years ago. Strauss joins Agnes Chu and Kevin Mayer out the door as the trio of central execs who launched Disney Plus have all now departed. And with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's TV's top five. Number one. Leading off, as I said, this week has already been a long year. On Wednesday, we, like many others around the world, were glued to the news as we watched Congress certify the Electoral College votes as terrorists attacked the Capitol. Yep, those were that was a thing that happened on our televisions and that happened in America. So... So thus, it becomes a topic for TV's top five because it totally happened on TV. And uh, I mean, and it's all that anyone's talking about right now, Dan. Exactly. It's no there. There is no question that there's nothing else that we could have led with this week. Uh, and and yeah, you know, we I, I wrote a column about this 
at THR that the thing that was supposed to be happening on Tuesday, the the confirmation of the electoral votes by state is such a historical rubber stamping that it's the kind of thing that I feel like a lot of people didn't even know existed. And it's definitely the kind of thing that most television networks as a rule probably would have just as soon skipped. Maybe they would have checked in at the very end to hear Mike Pence bang the gavel or whatever he had to do to say, well, that's the vote and Joseph Biden has won and whatever. And instead, it became it didn't even become the thing itself that was so ridiculous and absurd yesterday because, you know, the people attacking the Capitol wasn't necessarily the same as people objecting on a podium, but they were all tied together and it made for a day of strange and disorienting and vaguely surreal. I'm not sure if it's really, truly surreal. I mean, surreal is melting clocks and stuff, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Tuesday was a day. <laughs> yeah, it was such a day that it, this all happened on Wednesday because today is Thursday as we record this. So, yeah, what is time? You know, <laughs> it, but, you know, look, Trump went out on social media and continued to report false claims about the presidential election while expressing love for quote unquote love for his supporters. Facebook and Twitter removed many of the president's posts and videos and Twitter and Instagram have banned him for the rest of his term, however long that may be. I, I spent yesterday glued to the television like everyone else and just, I mean, I got emotional a few times because you're realizing what's happening to our country and it just all of a sudden you just feel like if this can happen and everyone knew this was going to happen, what else, what's next? You know, like what happens when he when Biden actually gets inaugurated? You know, can the inauguration continue as planned? It's I'm going to say surreal because I, I couldn't believe it. It was definitely tough. And, you know, we, look, we we talk about politics periodically on this podcast, but I, you know, I don't really and truly think being horrified by what was happening on your television yesterday is a uh, is a political emotion. I I would like to believe that just about any right thinking person and by right I mean correct not ideological uh I can't imagine a human being watching television yesterday and nodding and going, "Yeah, that's that's the system the way it's supposed to be working." Um And where was law enforcement? <laughs> I mean, you have the National Guard on the steps of every you have cr people with guns and tanks on the streets during Black Lives Matter and people are, are walking right into the Capitol. Like, there, there, just there were <laughs> are you kidding me? What, what, what was it? It was something like 13 arrests or something. Maybe I, I lost track of the number, but it was absurd. By the, how, by, how by the evening, it had, it had extended out to, I think, 54. And that included, I believe, curfew violations. Oh, come and on. Stuff. But but so many of the things that we watched happen on our TV. A guy uh, walked out of the Capitol holding a podium and waved to photographers. People knew this was coming. It was orchestrated on social media. They were literal tweets saying, hey, guys, this is coming. And no one was prepared for this. Uh, yes. And so, of course, this meant that everyone was doing wall to wall television coverage. And, you know, some networks also were pulling original programming at the night to do more news coverage. And yes. ABC and NBC both uh, pulled their scripted lineups. Uh, unclear what will happen tonight. Obviously, we're recording this uh, Thursday af uh, afternoon. 
And, you know, everyone has been trying to scramble to figure out how to find the right way to report things and the right tone. So if you look at what Seth Meyers did yesterday night, uh, his opening was roughly 15 minutes with no attempted humor at all, because because how do you how do you make funnies? Um, and the answer is it's challenging, but. Fortunately, we have a guest who's going to join us in what will be our second segment, and she's kind of a pro when it comes to making funnies out of things that objectively probably aren't funny. That sounds like what you would call a transition, Dan. I thought I'd try one. <laughs> Number two. Up second this week, like many of your favorite late night political comedy shows, TBS's Full Frontal with Samantha Bee took a holiday hiatus between the election and inauguration. And with plenty to discuss ahead of the show's sixth season premiere next week, we are thrilled to be joined by Samantha Bee. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Sam. I'm excited to be here. So I feel like I need to begin with the disclaimer that we are recording this on Thursday morning, and therefore we are clearly not responsible for being aware of anything that happens after this recording time <laughs> in the yeah. next 24 hours. And I'm curious, yes. does that disclaimer feel like it's kind of been your life for the past four years? <laughs> oh, fully, just entirely. Like in the before times, pre-pandemic, we would even struggle with that a little bit because just in the, you know, in the Trump era, news moved so quickly that even recording sometimes on a midday on a Wednesday or like, sorry, no, we would record at six o'clock on a Wednesday. We felt like we'd be out of date by 1030 on the Wednesday. And now in pandemic times, we record a day earlier. So now we have like a 24 to 36 hour. We need a grace period of 36 hours. It's just very <laughs> challenging. And then yesterday was bananas. And I don't know when you when does this wait, when do you drop this episode? We will drop on Friday morning. So God only okay. knows what could happen in the next 24 yeah. hours, <laughs> 24 hours to play with literally any Anything could happen. I Godspeed. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Everything we should say will be evergreen. So we can only talk about like soup flavors and ice creams we've tried. <laughs> I don't know what's left. But, you know, at, at a certain point, obviously, no late night show can do 52 shows a year. You know, so what how are you feeling knowing that that your show is back? January 13th and not mm -hmm. having this outlet right now? Well, I think we're all very grateful. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't always <laughs> quite feel the need to, like we were just, I have to say that we were so looking forward to not being quite so mad all the time. And here we are. Anyway, here we are again. It's fine. But I, I think I'm happy to have a week to kind of see what happens, see how it plays out, see what the Tuesday, Wednesday version of this story is. That doesn't bother me one bit, actually, especially right now. It just doesn't bother me. So we're, you know, we had a meeting today. We had a meeting this morning about it. And, you know, it's very difficult to kind of figure out what the Tuesday, Wednesday version of this story will be. We're not prescient. We try. We haven't quite got that part nailed yet. And I think we have, I think we have actually a really great take for next week. And but then in the meantime, I, I don't know what happens. I don't even know what happens minute to minute. 
the whole world could look different at the end of the recording of this podcast. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. Well, I mean, I assume that you, like everybody else, spent Wednesday mm -hmm. glued to your television. Can you describe the sort of phantom limb feeling of knowing that this is all happening and knowing that at that exact moment you don't have an outlet to say whatever you want about it? Well, I will say I felt really I felt really at a loss yesterday. I actually felt a little a, a bit of paralysis and uh, so I'm really grateful we <laughs> I didn't have to. I felt like citizen paralysis. I, I, I was so appalled, like, obviously not. We've been talking about this since the very beginning, but um, not not really surprised, but certainly shocked and horrified. And and I definitely felt like I just didn't have anything to say on social media. I wasn't like, let me get in there and put my stamp on it. I was just like, let me just, I'm just a human person watching the news feeling awful right now. And we were just all glued around the computer in the kitchen, just watching everything unfold. Awful. I, I feel like so many of us, though, you know, it's not so much that we feel like we have anything to say necessarily, mm -hmm. but it's sort of it's it's the void we yell into. Yeah, on, yeah. On. definitely. <laughs> it's also like group group therapy group on therapy, social media. For sure. Yeah, for sure. What do you have instead of that then? Uh, my husband. I yell at him. <laughs> no, we, <laughs> we yell at our screen. We yell at the screen. We literally we stalk around like I had. Anyway, you know, I didn't. We just were like, we're having a pizza for dinner. We can't think. <laughs> like, <laughs> no one can think right now. <laughs> we just had a really, like, I was like, I don't want a pizza. I'm having a chicken pot pie. Like, it was a miracle we could get anything together. And it, we just stalked around. The, we just were stomping around. And then we have a little, keep a little TV in the bedroom. And then we just stayed up until two o'clock in the morning continuing to watch the news and just going like I can't even believe look at this I know look at this just yelling at each other yeah <laughs> as you, you just do. described marriages everywhere last night oh 100 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> percent. a nice soft place and a nice person to yell with exactly mm -hmm. but you know you know, now that you also are part of the Warner Media family, you've been part of the Warner Media family, but now that the company has a streaming service that's somewhat successful in HBO Max, you do have an outlet if you hypothetically wanted to record and go into the backyard and record something and and an outlet to release that immediately. Has that been any kind of conversation that you've had or something that you've considered or had talks about with any of the executives over there? Uh, we haven't. I mean, we're st we're just actually trying to because we're in a studio now we have we have left our original studio setting and we're in a much smaller studio now with no audience capability at all and we're just figuring out the process in that place we haven't been there for that many shows so we're actually just trying to bring the processes that we need into that space so adding more shoots which i already do for field and for digital and for you know always kind of shooting content on some level. Um, I haven't this year said, okay, well, we could just do like daily things in the woods. Like I could just go out back and do anything like that. It's, I haven't, I have not crossed that. I, they have wanted that for sure in the past. And I'm sure that that will come up again and I'd be happy to oblige. 
Well, what has the process been like of having to be constantly evolving over these past nine months? Because as you say, you did shows in the woods, you've done shows in a smaller studio environment. What what has been kind of causing the need to adapt other than, I guess, eventually it was going to be too cold to shoot in the woods, probably? Well, that was the main <laughs> impetus, actually. I mean, <laughs> like we had to get pretty practical about it. I just don't want to shoot. And, we, you know, it's you can't get good sound when there's a blizzard and you'll be wet and all the equipment will frizzle, I guess. So, <laughs> you know, practically speaking, it's just so hard, difficult to do that. We could, we could have fudged it, I guess, but neither of us. It was pretty cold when we were shooting back there in March. Pretty cold some days in April, and that was not really all that appealing. So I think just practical needs have governed our every move we've made has been like, how do we keep the show in the air and make it actually physically possible make it logical, make it pandemic appropriate, make it super safe. Like what is each, we're just taking, it's it's like one foot in front of the other at all times. And then another variable kind of pops up and you go, okay, well, how can we deal with that? Like, how can we address that issue, put that to bed? So now we know moving forward, it's, it's all been very, I'm very pragmatic. You know, <laughs> there's a Canadian Catholic schoolgirl inside me not too deep she's right there at the surface like I can summon her and with the snap of a finger <laughs> pragmatism I could so easily be a potato farmer I chose this life <laughs> this life chose me it's great but I would really kill it in the world of potatoes also so <laughs> whatever is needed is kind of what we will do and and that's and and I I, I don't see like in the future, I don't see the world like super opening up. I don't see us really returning to the way it used to be. And that's perfectly fine. I'm kind of creating, you know, a, a, a shooting atmosphere and a template that I think is kind of livable and doable under any circumstances. Just sitting here waiting for the next pandemic. Getting <laughs> prepped. Well, oh, I can't believe I said that. That's not even a joke. I take it back. <laughs> so you've got the, with season six returning next week you're in a smaller studio but mm -hmm. you know is that in response to the surge or is that something that you always kind of had plans as you said you know you as you the show continues to evolve to, to meet the needs of our sad current reality no i planned we we've i've been planning that since the summer actually because i thought you know let's be i just i don't always want to have to upload all the footage on my own home computer. Like I can do it. And I did do it for a long time. And it really works. And I can do it if needed. But um, we needed a more permanent space. So we got rid of our old permanent space, which had just, we'll, we'll probably never go back to having a live audience. Like I don't know about that. So it's just not necessary for us to have like a, an airplane hangar with 250 seats in it. It doesn't seem to me like any of us will be really returning to those days anytime soon. So I just wanted to adjust technically to the world we're living in now. And that is sustainable, you know, for, for indefinitely, as long as they will have me on the air. <laughs> 
For you as a performer, what has the process of learning to do this thing without that audience, without that feedback? Sure. Well, I can honestly say that I do miss it. I mean, I miss it and I don't and I don't miss it. Like, I don't feel that I need it per se. I don't like as a human being, this just like Sam be the human being. I don't need people to go, good job. Like, oh, you. <laughs> I'm okay. My children think I'm like the unfunniest person in the world. And that's just fine. <laughs> it's really okay. <laughs> um, it's, it makes the show go smoother to have an audience because you, there's more, um, like from a, per, per, from a, a performer perspective, there's just more adrenaline. So like one of the things that I really liked to do, and I think I'm very good at is actually like powering through the show without stopping really when the live studio audience is present. I really like to give them the experience of what it would be like to watch the show at home. So we would, I would just tend to like really go for it and surf the wave of their energy and then take a sh really short break, you know, something akin to a regular commercial break and then just go right back into it. And, like it didn't always work. And sometimes there were step downs, but generally that was my goal. And now I'm having to create my own adrenaline. So like, I think I'm a little needier now because I don't have that immediate feedback. So I definitely, it's very quiet in the studio. It's like pin drop quiet. And then it's just like a quiet count into the camera. It's not really the same. It's very good. It's just a different experience. So I'm a little more, I'm just a little more needy. And I'm like, what's that? Was everyone, was that okay? Like, was my, was I really hysterical? Was that, <laughs> like, did I spin off or was that television okay? And no one gives me honest feedback and then I, then I do it again. So it actually takes a little longer to tape in, in a, in a quiet studio than it normally would. In the forest was, it took a, a lot longer because it was just me and Jason and I was running my own prompter on an iPad. And that was just bonkers. And then like an airplane would go by or a, someone would fire up their leaf blower and we would have to just pause and let that noise happen. Or like ants would crawl into my feet and bite me. <laughs> like it really was. <laughs> and listen, like we can do that again. I found it very enjoyable. I like being out in the backyard. It's really nice back there. No problem. I could do it if I had to. I'll do whatever. Whatever it takes. Can you put on the Sam B from 2019 or early 2020 hat and process what you just said there for that last minute and a half? Like, what does that how do you how do you look back at those couple months and go, wow, that was a thing we just did? I know. Well, I will say, like. I'm a different person from it. I'm definitely a different person from it. I I think it. I'm very proud. I'm actually extremely proud of what we accomplished. I'm extremely proud that we kept the show going um, and kept people working. Like that's the pragmatic person inside my brain who's like, everybody keep working. Everybody do jobs. <laughs> Making a living. Let's go. I won't stop. Um, it's inconceivable. Of course, it's inconceivable. But for me... Jason and I have been we've been married for a really long time. I think like 20 years ish, something like that. But we've always done 
low budget projects together. Like since we knew each other, we were like making a movie in our house or making a movie in someone else's house. So we're actually very used to jury rigging stuff. And like, it's very, we've always been reasonably DIY. So it's a, it was a pretty natural fit for us to be back there. And he just has such a great eye that that was possible. It, it somehow felt so otherworldly and also so natural because for us, it was in a way returning to our roots. That's so dorky to say, but a hundred percent true. And then <laughs> the other day, I don't know, we're always talking about like stuff that we're putting on the horizon. We're always like throwing shit at the wall. And I was like, I feel like we should make another movie. I just feel like we should like just make it because now we can know that we can. We know we can make a full movie with an iPhone. That's we just made a season's worth of shows, basically. And he was like, Please, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that's very tired. I'm tired. Can we just do regular production? It's <laughs> fine. Well, you know, it, it feels kind of you know, we originally put in the request to have you on the show to talk about the transition that was coming for for you and, and for well all, all of the world in the transition from covering a Trump administration to a Biden regime. I still can't wrap my mind around this. You know, we're talking about the 25th Amendment this morning, but how are you preparing and, you know, for that to make that transition? And I mean, and does all of that stuff get derailed after a day like Wednesday? Well, uh I am so, I, you know what? I really wasn't. I really didn't. I don't know. I just did not think that yesterday was going to happen the way that it happened. I would say that I was less worried about the next two weeks, two weeks ago. And now I'm very worried about the next two weeks. <laughs> I get very, very worried. Uh, as for the, you know, January 20th and forward, I have such great joy. I feel like, uh, I can't wait. I literally cannot wait. I have not done this show for one minute that wasn't under the specter of this like looming individual. Like I cannot wait for him to be gone and all of those people to be out of my life. It's so delicious. I can't believe I entertained the possibility for one second that this would be smoother than it was. I guess that was just the holidays talking. I mean, I don't know what it was, but I somehow allowed myself to believe it would go more smoothly than this. So I'm the fool. <laughs> I'm yeah, fool me many times. I am very gullible. Um, <clears throat> so that um, I don't know what you know. It's unspeakable what could happen in the next two weeks. Beyond that, I'm so excited to do this show without this horrible creature lurching around behind me and fucking with the news cycle every five seconds and doing terrible, the worst things imaginable. Imagine the story. We had so much hope, you know, when we thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. We had so many ideas for like fun stories we could be doing or very interesting things, that interesting places we could go. And all of that really was so shelved because that just was, you know, the world was became totally different. And now I feel like we're 
coming to a place with the show where we just, it's uncharted territory. I cannot wait to find out the things that we can discuss and consider when the world is just a little bit smoother, just like when grownups are doing stuff, like when the dorks take over again, I am so, I'm like, bring on the dork parade, please. I want to see some wonky people talking about some boring stuff that means a lot. I'm so excited. Let us just get there. Oh, God. <laughs> God. One of the, the side effects, though, of the past four years in the situation is that you sort of made a transition at a certain point from being, okay, we're going to be funny and we're going to be angry to we're going to be funny and angry and try to make tangible change. Like, I feel like there was a point at which you said there's an opportunity for us to do activism and advocacy. Let's do it. D do you kind of remember when you began to feel like you could do that? And, and how do you sort of look back at the transition that the show made to doing voter drives, to to taking such an active participatory role rather than just standing on the outside making yucks about it? I don't really remember what that moment was. It was really early in the show, though. It was pretty early on because I definitely thought that I would get canceled immediately. And uh, I was like, for sure, this isn't going to last. So, you know, I, I really feel like if you have a platform, you have to use it. Like, I really, truly believe that. And I just thought, what a wasted opportunity to have like everybody's attention and not make something with it. Like, the bare minimum, I think, that we can all offer in television is that you try to like, when you leave television, you try your best to make the world like a slightly better place for the people coming up behind you. Like, if you can just have a trail of a couple of good things that you did while you had the chance, like, why wouldn't you? There's, you can't, it's not a, you're not going to lose anything by trying to put some good in the world. So pretty, I don't remember what the first thing was, but it was a very early thought. I do think it's a waste. I feel like uh, if you're not doing something, then what the hell fuck are you doing? Like if I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. It's a rare gift. It's like a gift to have people who care about what you think and say. That's a, that's a, that's a gift that is not bestowed upon too, too many people. It's a very lucky position to be in. So for God's sake, you gotta make hay while the sun shines. I don't even know what that phrase is. I just totally messed it up. <laughs> no, no, that's that's, that that's the phrase. Oh, Yo, that's that's oh totally my God. the phrase. Great, great. And we already accepted that your future was as a potato farmer, <laughs> not a hay farmer, it's anyway. All, so. <laughs> it's all farm talk from here on in. <laughs> You know, well, at a, a point like like we are right now, waiting to see if Trump will remain in office for his final two weeks, you've got a show right in the middle of, of that period. How do you balance the need to be funny versus when, when especially when you're talking about a, a subject matter like this? Like, how do you find humor when when everything is on fire? I think um, we've been doing that the whole existence of the show. Like the world's been on fire since we started making not quite on fire right at the beginning, but almost the entire life of the show, the world has been on fire on some level. So we're used to that. I, we're not, I, I'm not worried about being able to make 
jokes next week. Um, and we will do it. We will see where the world stands on Tuesday when we record the show. And then maybe we'll have to do a disclaimer that's like, look, we don't just like what you did. <laughs> to go like, look, at least we recorded this Tuesday, like around noonish. So <laughs> sorry if everything seems offensive now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How often have you had those moments a day after air or two days after air where the news cycle changed so significantly that you're like, okay, I, we would not have done that if we'd known. I actually don't think that we have had that happen where I, I, I'm trying to think we came to that line many times where we were like, but what if this happens tonight? You know, like, can we still let's just make sure that we're covered in case this bad thing happens overnight. Um, so we've like definitely many, many discussions that's come up lots and lots of times. But I don't think that we've ever on the Wednesday when the show air has gone, that this seems so stupid now. There's, you know, we've just been lucky and very careful. So we'll see. I don't know. I just blew it. I guess next week is, <laughs> I guess next week is the week. <laughs> I mean, that's, I that's the thing because we knew that, you know, everyone knew January 6th was the day we were sure. looking at for, for being this thing. And yet, I don't think that many people were predicting exactly what it was. It's sort of the unpredictableness of the awfulness that's been yes. so, so quote-unquote exciting. I wasn't like predicting a man with his titties out, with his feet up on Pelosi's desk, sorting through her mail. I wasn't, mm -mm, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that. Yeah, That's or she sure. the Confederate flag inside the Capitol. The Confederate yeah. flag. Oh my god, I feel like I'm gonna take a sip of my water. I could take a bite out of my glass. It's <laughs> so awful. I thought you were setting yourself up for a spit take now or something, but Oh <laughs> I have to be very precious with my equipment. No, I'm just gonna chew this glass. <laughs> That's <laughs> that sounds safe. This is good. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. one other thing that I, I wanted to bring up uh, to you is a little off topic, but your TBS late night companion, Conan O'Brien, is ending his show this year as he transitions to a new format on HBO Max. Um, what kind of conversations have you had with him about signing off and, and how do you feel about your own future on the linear network like TBS? We actually have not talked about it. I oh, I learned it maybe, I guess it was in December. I don't know. Time means nothing to me anymore. Um, but I would talk to him about it. I'm I'm curious what um, what made him make that decision, and uh, I don't really know what my future is. I'm I'm really happy hanging out where I am right now. I'm like love my team. I like what we do. Um, so I don't have any big transition plans in my own mind. That is for sure. But I absolutely understand why he would want to do that. He's done that kind of talk show format for a really long time. And so I think seeking a new adventure makes a ton of sense. Makes a ton of sense. I haven't been doing it as long as he has been doing it. I mean, he truly is a, like an icon. So I'm not there yet. I'm just still digging out potatoes in the back. 
But you had you did mention that HBO Max does want some sort of digital content from you. Do you see a world where Full Frontal exists on TBS and obviously that, you know, winds up on HBO Max at a later date and there's some other digital show or, a, you know, a quick bite to use the Quibi slang language? Oh, my God, is I'm going to make my own Quibi. Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yes. I'm just going <laughs> to. But it's going to be spelled with a B-E-E at the end. And I think it's a billion dollar. I just need some. <laughs> I just need some VC money. Um, I I could see a lot of different versions. I could see a lot of different versions of this show. I don't like it's hard for me to talk about because no one's really sat me down and gone. Here is what we have planned for you, which is a big factor. It's not just what I want to do. It's also what they want to do with me. Um, I'm really open. I'm really open minded, though. I will say that. Like, I think, you know, we've moved linear television over to streaming services now. <laughs> it's seems sort of the same to me as well anyway that's just one woman's opinion but now like I have to watch commercials while also streaming I'm like all right um I I think I'm just open-minded and open-hearted about it I would like to first bite off the chunk of the next two weeks get in a like have a fun inauguration day and then slay the world with all of my plans for how to grow the show in different directions. <laughs> you talked a little bit about Conan and sort of the need to find new adventures. Yeah. And already before everything got locked down, you were looking for ways to find new adventures within the show yourself, you know, travel, travel segments and all of that. And obviously that is somewhat reduced as a possibility now. So as you look at the next couple months or years in this format, how do you see yourself trying to find the adventures that are going to keep you engaged? You know, we're all, always trying to reinvent the show and always trying to think of ways to like innovate. I do think I might try to play with the format of the show a little bit. I definitely have for a long time. We've talked about just like, <laughs> this is such a stupid idea, but I can't wait to do it. And we will just do it one day where we just, um, the show regular opening. And then it's just a, it's just a cooking show. And everything is in the context of like making a great saute. And we're just in a kitchen, no explanation required. I think like we'll need to put some stuff like that on our horizon just to have a like a loopy, fun finding ourselves period under a Biden administration. Like we just, we have to just find ways to fuck with people and mess ourselves up. That would be really hard for us to do. Like that alone, that dumb idea, which we are definitely doing, by the way, is we'll take like a Herculean effort during COVID to make, to pull it off, but we'll definitely do it. And the moment that we can travel again, I'm 100% hopping on a plane and going somewhere. You know, those adventures, we were Right now, like a lot of the mandate around the show, and it's really coming a lot for me is like, can we please just find a way to put some, can we put some joy in our lives? Like we don't, obviously we'll always tackle difficult material because that's like, that's who we are, but we are also comedy forward people. So we really want to, like, we didn't all get into comedy to have a terrible time all the time and be crying while we watch our <laughs> computer TV in the kitchen storming around. 
sometimes you can talk about pandas. It's going to be okay. I promise. Well, wrapping things up, um, if, if uh, wondering if you have one hope that you can share for the Biden administration. Oh, one hope that I can share. Oh, I have so many hopes. <laughs> I have so many hopes for them. I would say just please be so boring and wonky. Oh, there are so many things to undo. Like, please undo them all. Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. I, I have, we have like a list of like 350 things for them to do on day one. Oh, eat your veggies. Eat your veggies. You are going to be so busy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us thank on the podcast you. today, Sam. And, and here's hoping that nothing happens in the next 24 hours to make this entire interview <laughs> obsolete. <laughs> I will light a candle for you. I will say a silent prayer that, <laughs> that, the, <laughs> that we steady as she goes until Friday morning. Knock on wood. Thank you, Sam. Yes, thank you. Full Frontal with Samantha B returns to TBS on Wednesday, January 13th at 10.30 p.m. Number three. Up third, let's do a brief check-in on what's happening in the world of TV production. Last week, if you'll recall, we noted that CBS had delayed return to work on its Los Angeles-based productions. And in the time since, all of the major studios, plus Netflix, have done the same. And currently, a lot of them are looking at mid-January startups. So, Leslie, let's give the kids some sort of update because, once again, this just remains yet another of the biggest stories. And so if we're covering it again, we're covering it again. But there's always news. Yeah, well, you basically just summed it up. It's that every studio, all of the major TV studios and, and Netflix have all said that they're going to extend the, the holiday hiatus. And for a lot of these, I wonder how many of them didn't build in the quarantine on the flip side because you've got a lot of these shows that, that shoot out elsewhere and you want to allow uh, people time to travel, even though maybe they shouldn't be to go see their families because filming is such a challenging thing to do. It's not like you can go home and come back and all this other stuff. And, you know, the weekend travel stuff is, it makes it very hard to do anything, but yeah, a lot of people are looking at uh, January 11th or January 18th as return to work dates. There's an excellent story that our colleague Bryn Sandberg um, put together this week where she she a lot of sources told her and I've heard the same from a number of, of uh, my agency people who are saying the same thing that that a return to work on either, you know, sometime in, in January could be delayed. Look, L.A. remains just a complete and total shit show. As of our recording, one in five L.A. County residents who are tested for covid come back positive there's a new and more contagious strain that has been found in Southern California. It's basically just kind of a wait and see approach, which is what a lot of the studios are doing with regard to resuming um, production. And it, it's a, a big question because you've seen a lot of outbreaks on these sets. We talked about this in our last episode, whether it's an isolated case, you know, three or four positives or it shuts down for a day or something like Shameless, where there were, you know, more than 20 false positives that still cost them a couple of days of production. It's still a, it, an incredibly daunting challenge to to film anything in Los Angeles right now, especially when you're talking about groups and groups and groups of people from multiple households and several different departments. And you have talent filming without masks because they're making a TV show. So it just goes back to the question of is filming essential? And right now, no one's saying that it isn't. 
But a lot of these studios are basically listening to what the L.A. County uh, Department of, uh, you know, uh, what L.A. County officials are saying. And that's maybe consider slowing your return. And we're, it's a wait and see because you're starting to, you know, we are already seeing some of the surge from the holidays. That's expected to continue as the numbers continue to go up. I think yesterday was the first time that we hit 4,000 in, in a day, right? I can't keep up with the numbers. It's, I just it's, can't. It's yeah, Yesterday was the worst day. You're, I should say, you know, it, while we were watching what's going on in the Capitol, yesterday was the worst day of the pandemic in Los Angeles. And the idea of going back and, and shooting, I think, for a lot of people right now is probably very scary, especially when you consider the new strain. So, yeah, this is something that we'll, we will continue to monitor. But just a brief update to say, yeah, we don't know what's going on. And in the meantime, a lot of these networks preempting their originals for actual news coverage of what's going on and with a historic story like what we saw this week in the Capitol, not the worst thing to do. And of course, you know, everybody and this is TV and movie production, but it's also Humanity is, of course, looking to vaccines as a lifeline. And as you may be reading in your local newspapers, the vaccine rollout is is not going so spectacularly. Uh, some people would say yet another shit show, but we'll just say it's working on some levels and not on others. But it's clearly not going to be an immediate salvation for much of anything, unfortunately, it's it's going to be a gradual process. It's not it's not instant. And so anyone who was hoping, oh, well, you know, we'll just get a couple vials of the vaccine and everyone will have their antibodies and yay. And then production is normal. That clearly is not a thing that is going to happen for any of us. So, oh, well, <laughs> well, up next is time for our showrunner spotlights. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Number four. This week, in a change from our grim first three topics, we are joined by the creator of one of the most joyous shows on television. Austin Winsberg is the creator and showrunner of NBC's musical dramedy Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. He also created ABC's Jake in Progress and worked on the original Gossip Girl and, as a playwright, penned Broadway musical First Date and adapted The Sound of Music for NBC. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Austin. Thank you for having me. So getting started, I, as someone who, who covers all of the executive changes in the industry, that's that's where, really where I want to start. You know, with so much change at NBC, the network no longer has its own dedicated executive. It's now part of a content star under Susan Rovner. But you do have some stability in that Lisa Katz, who helped develop the show, is now head of scripted still uh, under Susan Rovner. But with all of the changes that have taken place at the company in the last few months, what conversations have you had with Rovner and even Lisa about how that affected your show? Wow, this is way more insider than I expected. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I knew Susan years ago. I had a deal at Warner Brothers at one point. Um, so I worked with Susan on several projects back then. So everything with Susan's just been friendly hellos and congratulations so far. And uh, she was instrumental in helping us get Lauren Graham back. And 
Lisa has been a constant from day one. So has Cara DeLaverson, who's still there. Um, so I haven't felt any residual change or anything. NBC has been really, truly supportive of the show from day one, marketing, promotion, the way everybody inside feels about the show. And I've had a lot of creative support in a way I've never had before. So I haven't felt, at least for me, other than dealing with COVID restrictions and production stuff and things we've had to do that everybody I think has had to do on shows, I have not noticed yet any um, repercussions of executive shakeup at the network. You know, and, and you did mention Lauren. I'm, I'm going to skip ahead ahead here, but you know, you mentioned get Lauren back. Obviously, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't already seen this week's season two premiere. Lauren Graham is basically almost written. It feels like she's written out. And you know, you said in interviews, including on THR, that this was a scheduling issue. She had Mighty Ducks lined up to shoot during the hiatus. Obviously, COVID production halt changed everyone's schedules and Mighty Ducks was in first position. So she's currently filming that instead of Zoe's. But you said that she's coming back or that Susan Rovner helped you get her back. What's going on there? Challenges, you know, during the earlier days of COVID, the earlier days, uh, trying to um, navigate among studios when passing people back and forth between different shows and trying to make sure that when you're in your own show bubble, that you're not going into another show bubble. So it just took a little work, I think, between Disney and NBC um, uh, understanding how to be able to bring her over for that, that one episode. We'll talk a bit about when you knew that was going to be the case uh, that you weren't going to have her for season two and how that impacts your storytelling. And, and if you'd maybe known a week or a month or however much sooner, if that would have had any impact. Uh, it definitely required some adjusting. I mean, we had been in kind of a negotiation process for a while and it was sort of uncertain when and how much time she would have. So Initially, I thought we had Lauren for the whole season and we had kind of crafted a whole arc for her. And she was in, I don't know, four or five, four or five of the first seven episodes or something like that. We had scripts written with with her in them. Um, we She was definitely in episode two. I definitely remember her being in five and six. And so we then it became it, it just started to get more complicated in terms of her scheduling and her availability to us. And so initially we were going to have seven days with her that turned into four days. And then that ended up turning into one day that we were going to have on episode one. So we definitely had to do some um, recalibrating. And it definitely happened later in the process than I would have preferred since we already had stories broken and scripts written. But we were able to shift gears and give some of her stuff to other people and adjust stories in a way that it did become kind of modular. It was more just disappointing that we didn't have her because I think she's great. And I know that she wanted to do it, too. So none of this was deliberate and none of this was her not wanting it to do it or me not wanting her to be a part of it. It just became a victim of the COVID timing and her commitments to the other show. And then it was just, is it even possible to get her for a day? And then how would we do it? And trying to be as eloquent as possible in writing her out in one episode when I had plans with her that extended through the season. So, I mean, obviously the character is sent off, you know, and gets a job out of the country with the, comp with the same company on, that, on the show. But... Do you have any plans to get her back at all in season two? And what kind of conversations do you have about season three? Should you be so lucky? Uh, I would love, we have not had those conversations yet. We're, we're, we're just finishing shooting episode seven. Uh, I'm actually back in quarantine in Vancouver right now as we speak. And so uh, I need to touch base with her about the end of this year and also for next year. And I certainly don't want us to get into the same um, trap again. So uh, I think that she's open. I don't want to speak for her. I got I to gotta have more conversations with her, but I'd love to have Lauren back. But nothing else this season with her. 
Uh, I don't want to confirm that because I, I, I haven't had that convo with her yet, honestly. And we're still breaking 12 and 13. So it's possible. Now, when you guys were brought back last year, it was a little bit of a, a delay and everything was kind of weird in the spring. So, you know, that's it probably wasn't necessarily representative of anything. But when you had those renewal conversations with NBC, were there conversations about changes that were going to be made to the show? Like, you know, had you known, would you be have been able to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to have Lauren. So that's one corner we're cutting, so to speak. Oh, you're talking budgetarily? But budgetarily or just the show itself in general, I mean, she her, losing her would obviously be budgetary more than sort of quality. But did they tell you anything that they wanted changed? Did you tell them anything you'd be happy to change? What were those conversations like? I think there's two steps to this. Uh, step one was me going in and pitching my plans for season two to the to the network. And that was prior to pick up. So I think probably sometime around April, I went in and did a whole, um, this is my presentation song and dance for everything that's happening in season two. Here are the big arcs. Here's what's happening with every character. Here's what Zoe's going through. And um, everybody was really happy with my creative pitch for the show. I mean, I, it's, it sounds Pollyanna-ish or like I'm lying to you guys, but honestly, I've had very, very little creative interference or anything that the network has said to me were like, we don't want to do this. If anything, it's a song here and there where there's some questions or just make sure that this moment you're clarifying what's happening here and nuanced stuff. But they've never told me I couldn't do a story or I should do this or I should do that. Once we started getting into production questions and budget stuff for season two um, with Lionsgate and studio stuff, then it was just how do we shoot this show during COVID? How do we actually accomplish it? And so there were certain things like we had a lot of interior location work last season in clubs and bars and restaurants with lots of people that became much more challenging. And so it was, a, then it was about, let's create a few more existing sets that we can go to, um, that we can kind of have more control of in our own bubble. And, you know, maybe you need to do a little less outside work. It's just, it just sort of what, what are the, what's the nature of the things in which we can control versus what we can't control. But honestly, and, and then somewhat, it was a little bit of trying to find more scenes that are more two people than big group scenes. And a lot of this was me trying to figure this out before we knew how COVID production would happen. And so there's also been a bit of a learning curve since we've been in production of, oh, well, this wasn't as hard as we thought. So maybe we can do a little bit more of this and, oh, we feel really safe with this. I mean, there's so many protocols in place and we test three times a week or more and everybody's in the different zones that, knock on wood, we've been lucky to basically um, shoot the show the way that we've, that we've wanted to shoot it, shoot it without it feeling too hopefully different from anything from last year. You know, I'm glad, so happy that you brought up all the changes that were put in place because of the pandemic. But obviously, when you're going from shooting these still, like the season premiere still had a very large crowd scene and a musical number. So you're still able to do some of those things. But, you know, the subsequent episodes are a little bit more intimate, you know, as you said, the you know, more scenes and, and with, with just two people, especially at the musical performances and a couple of solos here and there. But, you know, in the, in the larger sense, this is a show that completely ignores COVID in terms of the narrative while adhering to some, and, you know, even though you can see the changes on the screen because of what's happening in real life. But can you talk us through the decision to not incorporate COVID into a show like this? Yeah, I just felt like this was a musical show. This is a hopeful show. This is hopefully some form of escapism for people. There's a certain amount of wish fulfillment in it. And I just felt like we were already living enough seeing 
pandemic, corona all around us. I just didn't want it to be part of Zoe's world. And I also started thinking about like musical numbers with people in masks, which I have to see when Mandy Moore sends me previses of dances already, which is already a weird visual thing. There's so much to, to, to me, corona wise, that took us out of the show. And I already felt like we were going to be living in grief in season two with the death of Mitch, that I didn't feel like I wanted to add another layer of grief and sadness about the world on top of it. I felt like maybe there were ways to have nods to what we're all going through and nods to the grieving process and loss and sacrifices we've had to make during this time um, and the need for human connection uh, felt more interesting to me to have it sort of more as a metaphorical idea than to have to be living in a COVID world. I just didn't, I just never saw it as a piece of the Zoe's experience. And speaking back to that uh, number in episode one, Mandy Moore and I, our choreographer, were like, could, concerned, could we actually pull this off? How would we do it? How does it work with all these dancers that you have to get in and all the testing that everybody has to do? And it was, we had a lot of anxiety about it beforehand. And I remember when that number finished, we might've cried. Uh, we definitely hugged and just felt a sense of relief because it felt like, oh, we can still do Zoe's. And so I've learned, you know, I try to do almost every single episode, at least one bigger number, at least one number that has a lot of people in it or, or a good handful of people in it. And I do think this show is better when we can come Combine solo numbers with bigger numbers too. So almost every episode you'll see going forward has at least a, one bigger number in it. Well, can you give us a sense of uh, just on a sheer time level how much a number like that has been impacted by the changes you have to make? You know, just if you have a big number, how much more time do you have to put on the schedule? to make sure you can do it. It's now. more logistics and it's more pre the day because it, Mandy could probably speak to this more eloquently than me, but it's just a lot of what she has to go through with the dancers and the testing and the contracts. And the, um, I think it's just a lot more sort of paperwork and health related stuff on the day. It has not impacted our time. I mean, look, we have eight days to shoot a musical TV show that usually has five musical numbers in it. The degree of difficulty that we're trying to accomplish every week while being wildly ambitious, every musical number has a conceit or an idea behind it. And we never just shoot coverage. We never just shoot the number. Here it is. Mandy does these elaborate previses and then we go and shoot it on the day. And a lot of times we shoot it as oneers. So we just shoot it where it's all one shot. That actually helps us time wise because we're not having to get it from 17 different angles. So in some way it's a strategic thing, but it's also deliberately built into the conceit of the show to make it feel like it's more of like a real song and dance and a performance and that's always experiencing it. So that was stuff we talked about even on the pilot. I just never wanted the show to feel too cutty or too over edited. Um, I hate when you can just go to a close up of a hand or a kick and you're not, and you, so it gets, sometimes dance numbers get edited so much within an inch of their life that you don't actually see or feel the dance. It was always important to me to really see and feel and experience it. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned how much season two is really affecting dealing with grief already with the death of Mitch, which is, of course, the character played by Peter Gallagher. So knowing as you're prepping this season that that you had Lauren at a certain point for just the one episode and Peter no longer part of the main ensemble, obviously, you, you still find creative ways to, to incorporate him. But how did you kind of prepare to, to make this big change and, and still expand the world of Zoe's when you're losing two very central characters? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think you said it exactly right. I think the first part was making sure that the show still had an emotional through line. 
And that was probably the thing I lost the most sleep over was how do we still have emotional resonance in season two now that dad is gone? And I spent a whole bunch of time entertaining ideas of before knowing that Lauren was leaving, you know, should Joan get cancer? Should David and Emily's baby be born with some sort of condition? Do we need to have a new um, disease of the season? (laughs) And for me, that just felt um, artificial or trying to pull at heartstrings in a manufactured way. And from the beginning of the show, the show has always been based on my father and my experience with my own family and what happened to my own dad with his PSP. So I just wanted to remain authentic. And that was the biggest headline for me. And there was so much story for me to tell after my dad died that I had a six months of grieving before my dad passed away and another six months to a year of grieving after. And I wanted the second season to be about how do we move on? How do we recover after a tragedy? And so the emotional path of recovery to me became the through line and the central conceit not only for Zoe, but for Maggie, for Mary Steenburgen, for David, who's Andrew Leeds, who's the brother, um, for his wife, Emily, Alice Lee, to kind of, how does the all family all deal with this? And then on top of that, I'm also feeling the need to expand the ensemble, especially because Zoe gets promoted at work and Max is no longer working in the bullpen. I knew that I wanted to bring some new life into the bullpen. So we brought Harvey Gillen in starting in episode one. We bring some more people in starting in episode two. Uh, then also expanding with other people. We bring in Emily's sister to help with the baby starting in, in, in episode two. We bring in an outside work thing for Maggie. Um, we bring in a next door neighbor starting at the end of episode four. So there are ways where we're continuing to try to, And I think that's important in season two of a show, too to try to continue to figure out ways to build out and expand your world. Well, as you mentioned the love triangle and the love triangle was established in the in the pilot and obviously fans are invested in it though Jane likes to periodically tweet that she's just team Zoe. Um what has surprised you about audience reactions to that love triangle about maybe reactions from other people in the writers room? Do you guys get in fights about those two characters, etc.? <laughs> Uh, certainly from the world at large and from social media, uh, I didn't know that there was, it was, they were going to have such a vocal opinion about it. I mean, I was, I wanted to make sure that maybe this is my own naivete about television and, but you know, you never know how, what things are going to connect or land with people early on. So I made a point in episode three of the show to talk about team Max and team Simon, just to really make sure that it was clear that people had an opinion, like that we're definitely going down these roads. I don't think I was prepared for the level of emotional connection, connection or passion that fans feel about uh, one side or the other. And I think inevitably uh, someone's going to be upset with the choices that are made. You know, I don't think there's any way to please all the people all the time. And I think that's the lesson I'm learning the longer we go on. Definitely we had lots of discussions in the room about what is – Max bring to Zoe uh, that Simon can't? Why is the Simon relationship with Zoe different? Which relationship is better at what time for what reason? So we definitely have a lot of thoughts and opinions about that. Uh, I'm not sure we've definitely been on the side of coming to blows over who does she end end up with. But I also felt it was important to make a choice early on in season two uh, versus continuing to do this flip floppy will they or won't they, especially now when we're dealing with adults. I don't know how much longer both men or one of those guys would wait if if it's she spent an entire another season being like, I don't know, I like you, I kind of like you. I think at a certain point you just got to make a decision and, and see where it goes. 
And there's a version of this show that's kind of fixated more on the mystery of Zoe's gift and trying to either fix it or solve it. And I feel like in the first season, there were a couple episodes, usually the stuff with Mo, that was kind of trying to get to that. But as we start the second season, I feel like there's less of that. And I'm curious where you stand on whether it's something that needs to be explained, whether it's something that needs to be cured or whether you're perfectly content to let her for eight years, if necessary, just continue to have these musical moments. I think it was definitely something that happened very early on in the show. We probably explored it more as she was sort of coming to terms with her powers. A lot of the arc of season one had to do with her relationship to her powers. And, you know, episode two was about, can I control my powers? Episode three was about my responsibility to my powers. Episode four was how does faith factor into the powers? That was all kind of part of the design. For me... It's something I think whenever we can sort of twist the powers or talk about the powers or explain why the powers are happening or how those powers are deepening Zoe and making her a more emotionally connected and aware person, I think those are interesting. And we definitely do some stuff, especially in episodes 9, 10 and 11, where we start to of this season, where we start to dig back in again to what's happening with the powers and why and her relationship to them. We do another glitch episode this season in a different way than we did last season. Uh, so I like when we kind of dip our toes into the the kind of the mechanics of the powers. Once we get into the mythology of the powers and the rights and the wrongs of it, I had scenes written, I think both in season one and season two now, where she does go to doctors. And that's one of the times where both studio and networks have been like, I don't think we need it. So I have tried to kind of explain things away. There's also something times what there's something where it's like the more you explain, the less magical it becomes. So I, I I'm not in, I'm definitely not um, against trying to go deeper into the mythology of the why. We also talked about in the room, like if this was a superhero show, do you start to discover other people who have the powers? Is there someone evil who wants the powers? You can really start to dig into kind of comic book tropes with that stuff. Just didn't feel exactly like our show. So I try to navigate a little bit of the mythology and a little bit of the power stuff with still kind of telling authentically human stories. And maybe if the show should be so lucky to continue for more years, maybe there's a time down the road where we could start to expand the heroes team of it all and the Justice League of musical something. But, you know, I haven't gone down. I haven't really talked about that much yet. And you mentioned Zoe's glitch, and that was a clear standout episode from the first season. When you have an episode like that and you prove that you can make it work, how does that change the pressure on you to make sure that you are able to get Jane singing and dancing when the overall conceit of the show doesn't inherently allow you to do that? I think um, I'm always trying to find creative ways to be inventive with musical numbers on the show. And that Mandy and I are set, we're our own toughest critics and we have a very high bar for ourselves that we're always trying to top or be inventive with. I mean, Mandy's done almost, next week she'll have shot 100 musical numbers already for the show. So, you know, after 100 numbers, you're still trying to think of creative ways to spin and twist and change. And one of those things is trying to figure out how do we get Jane to sing and dance? Because Jane's good at it and likes doing it. And I think the audience likes seeing her do it. So, you know, I found a way in episode two to get her to sing. I found a way in episode three. I found a way in episode five. And just to continue to find ways to justify Zoe singing is one of our challenges of ways to be creative with the musical numbers on the show. But you don't just want to approach it as sort of the glitch episode of the season. Correct. And by the way, in the glitch episode of this season, spoiler, she does not sing. It's a different kind of glitch. (laughs) 
you know, you mentioned obviously so much of this, this show is about the music and, and you know, I, I remember when I covered Glee in the early days, there was always the challenge of can they get the rights to some of these songs? And then once the show became this big, you know, phenomenon, people were calling, you know, the artists were calling in and saying, please pick our song. Have you experienced any of that with your show in terms of artists calling you wanting to be featured or trouble getting rights to songs no, that you now really I'm, want? Now I'm sad about it. <laughs> we, I don't think we've gotten too much incoming yet that I can think of, but miraculously, I mean, this is the other like Pollyanna thing. Season one, we got every single song that we went after. And there were maybe Jen Ross, who's our music supervisor, is awesome. And there were like five or six times where she said to me, you're going to have to write a letter to the artist directly to see if that can help us get the song. And in every case, Beastie Boys, Paul Simon, Beyonce for Destiny's Child, Van Morrison, we got the song. And there were times where she was like, I don't think we're ever going to get this song, but good luck. Try it. And we got the song. There was only one song we didn't get all of last season. And it was a Wiz Khalifa song that I didn't know the association at the time was used uh, with Paul Walker's death in Fast and the Furious. Um, See You Again, I think was the song. And they didn't want that song associated with another sad thing after it being associated with Paul Walker. So I didn't know when we went after the song that that had that connotation. That was the one song we weren't able to get last year. And this year we have been able to get, as far as I can remember, every song that we've gone after. The caveat to that is that Jen tells me in advance, there's like a handful of artists that I now know are very, very difficult to get. And so by design, we haven't approached people that we know would be hard to get. Such as? Uh, U2, Coldplay, I think is a challenging one. Taylor Swift has challenges because of some of her legal stuff. Adele, Madonna, Bruno Mars. There's kind of a hand, there's a, sort of a handful of people and I'm still going to try to take swings at some of them, but it's definitely one of those things where we need a lot of lead time and we got to do it in the right way. And I, I don't, I can't even tell you the reasons why these people are difficult. I just know that there are certain artists that are very challenging that Jen says from the get go, we're going to have a really hard time if we try to chase this. Have you guys had conversations about stunt casting for singing? I mean, just in general casting known singers, you know, in guest roles, but also you are on a network that has a very, very successful musical franchise with a lot of big name people associated with it. Has anyone tried saying, can you find a place for this person from The Voice or whatever? Um, I definitely try to always uh, like, you know, I, I lean a little more Broadway. My it's sort of my Broadway nerd stuff is like if we could get this, you know, like like having um, Renee Lee's Goldsberry last season as an example of that. Um, I try to but every part that we cast, because we don't always know if these people are going to be in for several episodes and we're going to want them to sing or not, I always try to make sure that we cast people that I know can sing and dance in these roles. As far as sort of bigger performer names and all that, I would love to have people. We have a challenge this season because we're in Canada and everybody has to do a 14-day quarantine. So it's, it's harder this year even than last year with our ability to bring people in from the States and also who's the willingness of someone like Adam Levine, who I went to high school with, uh, you know, the, will, <laughs> the willingness of someone like that, just to use him as an example, like, um, I know he's not on The Voice anymore, so I probably should say that name. Um, but, you know, someone like him, are they really going to quarantine for two weeks to shoot three scenes? I don't know. So this season's been a little bit more complicated in terms of just our ability to get sort of the fun name your guest stars to come in and do an episode. Yeah. And that's something that's absolutely universal that's happening to every show out there right now. And and since you did bring up being in, in quarantine, obviously so much of the productions have, have been delayed, especially here in Los Angeles. But, uh, uh, you know, for, for you, 
have has your return to production date been impacted at all by is there a surge in the area? Um, I, I, I'm not quite aware of all the, what's happening in Vancouver right now we haven't had any indication yet that we're going to have to postpone the start. We had a, we had a few moments earlier on in the season. We had one day where there was some, there was some challenges. This happened to a lot of shows up here where there was one lab that was doing all the testing and they couldn't accommodate it all. So I think we, we ended up going on hiatus for three days while we figured out the lab situation. Um, yeah, it happened to a lot of the CW shows that shoot up there too. Yeah, you know, we had we had one or two false positives that ended up shutting down a you know the close contact people for a couple of days, only to realize that it was actually that they were fine. Um, but so other than that, we've been we've been knock on wood again. Like we've been lucky that we're able to keep going. I feel like we've been ta- we've been talking obviously to a lot of producers and showrunners about going back into production in COVID. And I feel like we've kind of had a split of people who have decided that they just as soon do it from home and, you know, monitor productions from their laptops or whatever. And then there are the people who want to be on set. Why have you felt it was important, even though you have to do this whole quarantine process to even get there for you to actually be there physically? Uh, I was here, this show, to me, this show, everything, this show is about tone. The tone of this show is vital. And I'm constantly fighting to preserve the tone because I've always felt like, you know, two degrees this way or that way. And like, if we can find our sweet spot, the show has the potential to be special and meaningful. But two degrees this way could be really cheesy. Two degrees this week, this way could be really bad. And so I'm always trying to be mindful of that. Uh, I was here early on in the season and then I went back to L.A. for a couple months and I had sitting in my home office with my two young kids in the room next door, um, four monitors going at all times, 17 hours a day, seven days a week. After two to three months of that, I started to feel like I was going a little bit nuts. And, you know, no human contact, but kind of running this organization through a room by myself just proved to be really, really challenging. And I just felt like to come back for the second part of the season, I wanted to be here just to support the actors, to make sure we're all on the same tonal page. Also, our DP is directing episode eight, and I wanted to be here to support her. Um, Mandy Moore is directing episode 11, and I wanted to uh, potentially be here to be here with her for that episode. So, a lot of, of course, you mean Mandy Moore, your choreographer, not Mandy Moore, the, the star of and but, singer. But I'd us. be happy to get her as well. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of it is... It, uh, I feel like anytime I can be, because of the nature of the show, anytime I can be closer to where it's all happening, it's hard. It's hard for my family. I have a lot of empathy for my wife. It's really hard for me to be away from our kids. We got a puppy two days before I left. It was not the smartest choice. Um, but I just feel like this show in particular, I, I feel because there's so many different elements to it, because there's the dance, the music, the comedy, the drama, the, I just feel more secure about it when I'm near it. You, you've mentioned the tone several times, and it's and it's funny because we sort of thought it would be <laughs> – we thought having you on this week would be great because everyone is so stressed out about literally absolutely everything in the world, and this is such a hopeful, smiley, big-hearted show. But it is also a show that, as you say, is living in a place of grief this season, and it's it's very sad. And I'm just curious how hard it's been to walk the line this season between honoring Zoe's need to grieve – but also making sure that it is still the peppy, big-hearted, ultimately hopeful show that you also want it to be. I think it's the same challenge we had last season, honestly. I mean, last season we were dealing with the father's declining health 
the entire season and what the toll that it was taking on the family. I feel like the show lives in a tonal sweet spot when it can be comedic, emotional, meaningful, heartfelt. It's a lot of boxes I try to check. And not, and also, you know, what I've learned this season is not every week are we going to be pulling at the heartstrings as much. Not every week can we be digging into the depths of the emotional despair, nor would we want to. So there's some episodes that are just fun. And then there's episode six this season, we do a deep dive into systemic racism at SparkPoint and in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. So the same way that we took big swings last season with talking about Moe's relationship to church or the deaf episode, I do think there's an opportunity with music and that we can talk about these issues in ways that other shows can't. And I don't want to be afraid to take those big swings. So definitely the challenge for me tonally is always how can we have all those things coexist and not make it feel like tonal or emotional whiplash. And so, and I think there are some episodes that are more successful at balancing that than others. Well, Austin, we really have enjoyed having you on. And we do like to wrap with the same question every week. What are you watching and enjoying? I mean, I'm always a giant fan of the reality show alone. Uh, I've been, but I've been a fan of that for years and years. Uh, I have a good story about that. What else have we watched? I've been watching Ted Lasso lately. I think Ted Lasso has some of that the heartfelt stuff that we tried to do as well. And I think there's something that fe- that's feel good about that show that I respond to. I just watched The Flight Attendant was one I just watched. Um, I thought there was a lot of fun stuff in The Flight Attendant. I actually think The Flight Attendant has a lot of, um, even though it's somewhat different tonally, a lot of similar challenges in dealing with the different tones, dealing with um, this lead who's going through emotional stuff but still trying to be light on its feet at the same time. So it was interesting to watch it a little bit from that perspective. Uh, but I, I enjoyed that show a lot. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, not this, I'm not answering this one well. You did, actually. You did That's, it quite well. And I kind of like the idea of the flight attendant and Zoe as being almost different sides of a similar coin, you know, with with the main character in that one's kind of mental palace thing, as opposed to breaking it. Yeah, the musical numbers. But it's a similar thing because Kaylee Cuoco's character in that is going through her own version of grieving, her own version mm-hmm. of coming to terms with her own psychological issues. She's caught up in her own thing. And that show is light on its feet. And that show does have a stylistic thing that's going for it. So I actually saw dealing with friends and dealing with family. Like I actually saw a lot of similarities between the two when I was watching it. Hadn't thought about it, but it totally works. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Austin. Thank you, guys. The second season of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist airs Tuesdays on NBC. Episodes can also be found streaming on Peacock. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Tiger on HBO, Pretend It's a City on Netflix, Paramount Network turns CBS all-access drama Coyote, NBC's Mr. Mayor, season two of Apple's Dickinson, and ABC comedy Call Your Mother. Dan, what you got? Well, uh, Mr. Mayor and Coyote both premiered on Thursday, but since I couldn't touch on them last week, might as well touch on them at least briefly here. Uh, Coyote is... I don't know. It's uh, it's sort of an intense border drama with Michael Chiklis as a former border officer who finds himself working on the other side of the border and on the other side of the law or something to that effect. It's it's very well produced. Michael Chiklis is always easy to watch. And Michelle McLaren, who's the director, while she did much better work on desert episodes of Breaking Bad, she knows how to shoot desert scenes. Uh, 
So it's entirely watchable. Its politics are so strange to read, though, that I found myself a little exhausted by it. Uh, I just I just at a certain point fairly early on said, OK, this is not a thing that I need right now. Maybe I'll go rewatch The Shield if I need that. And The Shield's not a reassuring show either. So anyway, uh, Mr. Mayor is new show from Robert Carlock and Tina Fey and uh, features a lot of fantastic people. And the featuring of a lot of fantastic people is the reason to watch it. It's Ted Danson as the new mayor of Los Angeles. And this is just another one where where timing is so bad, really. Uh, you know, if you are in Los Angeles, you are well aware of what having a somewhat bumbling, somewhat ineffectual mayor or even having, let's just say, uh, uh, a mayor whose track record is mixed. Let's just say that. Let's say Garcetti did some things at the beginning of the pandemic that seemed to be good and then not so much lately. Uh, That's an understatement. We, it, it, it is. It, I'm, I'm trying to be tempered. We've definitely had a lot of evidence of what happens in a major city if the mayor is not perfect. And so I found myself really kind of unable to laugh at a show where it's like, ha ha ha, the mayor of Los Angeles's job is to go to mall openings and random celebrity appearances. Uh, your results on that one may vary as a Los Angelino or at least a Los Angelino transplant. I also kind of got the feeling that Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, not so much with the knowing anything about Los Angeles in 2020. The, the jokes are all really, really lazy, really, really facile jokes about California that in some cases are are two decades old. Uh, our colleague Ingu Kang reviewed it for us, and she notes that one of the funniest jokes involves the other candidates who run for mayor against Ted Danson's character. And you stop and realize that the joke that's being made about the other candidates, including Gary Coleman's ghost and a libertarian porn star, all relate to a recall election that was 15 years ago. I mean, that is just not finger on the pulsey. And so yeah. all of these things, if the show were funnier, it'd be funnier. Yeah, but and and not let's not funny. forget that Mr. Mayor was originally conceived as a 30 Rock spinoff that was going to be set in New York, featuring Alec Baldwin reprising his role. And Baldwin was negotiating for the better part of a year per sources. And when he backed out, the producers went out to Ted Danson. Ted Danson lives in Los Angeles and did not want to relocate to New York. So they moved the show to Los An to being set in Los Angeles and removed any traces of, a, of its ties to 30 Rock. So there's that in the back of your mind. And unfortunately, any traces to actual specificity, unfortunately. Uh, this is definitely not one I'm going to quit on. There were enough kind of hints of humor, and heaven knows the cast is just so great. I mean, it's Ted Danson, it's Holly Hunter, it's a lot of really good people. Uh, this could eventually settle into being a good show, but the way it is awkwardly shoehorned in around the real world, and they had to do a lot of reshooting on the pilot in order to both acknowledge that COVID was a thing that happened and that it was the thing that we're past, so we don't need to discuss it anymore. It it doesn't wholly work. So anyway, those are two shows that have already premiered. Uh, what else is coming? 
I, I strongly recommend Pretend It's a City on Netflix. And I, I feel like I've recommended a lot of these kind of chronicles of a city lately, whether it's How To with John Wilson on HBO, a show that I am still struck to find that lots of people haven't heard of. So I'm just going to say one more time. It was one of my top three shows last year. It's a great show. Um, or City So Real on Nat Geo and now Hulu which much more serious show, but also in my top 10 from last year. Uh, so this is Martin Scorsese's second documentary collaboration with cultural critic and general New York intellectual gadfly Fran Lebowitz. And this is a seven episode show about Fran Lebowitz's New York, really. And it's it's beautifully shot. Fran Lebowitz, if you know her, if you saw their previous collaboration, Public Speaking, a documentary from 2010, you have a sense of her and you have a sense of Martin Scorsese's appreciation for her. She's very funny. She's very smart. She's very caustic. And that is on full display here. Um, you know, maybe occasionally you get tired of her consistent withering approach to the world. And this is speaking as someone whose approach to the world is occasionally withering. But in the balance, I, I just really loved watching these seven episodes. Uh, what else is coming? Tiger on HBO. It's a two-part, nearly four-hour documentary about Tiger Woods. It, like everything else, is executive produced by Alex Gibney. Um, it's average. And that's, and that's just where I came down on it is there's a lot of good footage. Tiger Woods' story really and truly is interesting. They have a couple interesting interviews. They have Rachel Yucatel, Tiger Woods' mistress's first sit-down interview about Tiger. Ooh, if that's the kind of thing that excites you, yay. Um, but Tiger Woods has no involvement in it. And while HBO likes to boast that it's Tiger Woods' story told by the people who know him best. God, it's really not. It's Tiger Woods' story told by people who knew him at various phases of his life and people who really, for the most part, don't know him at all anymore. And you feel that consistently and throughout. Um, I think I think it is unquestionably watchable, but ESPN did a one-hour documentary with The Undefeated about Tiger Woods about a month ago, and it was much smarter and had much more perspective on Tiger Woods and also it was only an hour as opposed to nearly four. Um, I, I would say to go check that out. And yeah, this this is not OJ Made in America. This is not even The Last Dance. It's a minor disappointment, not a crushing disappointment, but it's disappointing. Um, coming up next week and with significantly less expectations for me, it's the Kira Sedgwick ABC comedy uh, Call Your Mother. And as I told everyone when I watched the pilot, and I've seen only the pilot, it is definitely not the worst broadcast multi-camp sitcom I've ever seen. So that's that's what it is. It's uh, there. There are some funny things. Kira Sedgwick is good. If you've watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know that she is very capable of being funny, even if you mostly think of her from the closer and her movie roles. Uh, and, you know, I can I can see how this might grow more amusing, but. I would say a little bit like Tiger that the pilot for Call Your Mother is average. And honestly, when it comes to broadcast comedy pilots, average isn't so bad. And yeah, so that's a compliment for a broadcast pilot. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No, no, no harm there. And of course, the week's other big premiere is the second season of Dickinson on Apple TV Plus. And I have not yet watched it, but I have it on my schedule to watch this weekend because, as you would like to say, 
this is what we call a transition. Joining us next week is Alina Smith, the creator and showrunner of Apple TV's Dickinson. Well, for more of Dan's recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Dan, my friends, feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us. Rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It really does help spread the word of mouth, and we are all about the word of mouth. Tell your friends. You can always come on Twitter and say hi to us. We're happy to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you would like to be a part of future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, everyone. Join me on the turning point up close and personal with leaders and get to know what makes their metal and fiber. I am Keshav Murugesh, and I look forward to unraveling greatness with you. The Turning Point Podcast is now on Spotify. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.